The following audio is from Downtown Church, a multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Let's now go to God's Word. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, and it reads, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to, sw- to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. So what we just sat under was the very word of God. Amen. Amen. Uh, it's wedding season. Anybody know that? It's wedding season. Anybody been to a good wedding? I love weddings. Yes. We have one person that's been to a good wedding. Uh, and I think it was his own. That's why he was so excited. Uh, I love wedding season. We've had uh, several couples just recently uh, jump the broom, and it's so exciting to see a couple dress up, and they walk to the altar together to declare their love for one another. I've, I've had the privilege of officiating weddings. I've had the privilege of standing with great friends of mine at their on their wedding day. And I've had the privilege of being in the congregation. And one of the things we learn about weddings is that a wedding uh, puts this whole thing of Christ's love for his church on display. And what we learn for, as it relates to weddings is on, on the wedding day of the bride and groom, it's not just about them dressing up in nice clothes. It's not just about that wedding day. It, and though our friends and our family come and, and it's a beautiful occasion, it's not just about them. Uh, we declare that, that this man and this woman, they, they are making a covenant between God and man, before God and before man. They're, they're covenanting, covenanting with one another that I am yours and you are mine and nobody can break us apart. They're declaring their love for one another and their affection for one another. They're saying, you are mine and I'm yours forever. But it's not just about them. Marriage puts the love that Christ has for his church, the unfailing, the loyal, unconditional love that Christ has for his church. Marriage on our wedding day puts that on display. For the world to see and all of the people that come to witness get to see this love that Jesus Christ has for broken people on display. And that man and that woman, they stand before one another and they declare to the world, I'm a mess, but I love you anyway. You're a mess and I love you anyway. 
We're both a mess, but we love each other anyway. And they declare to the world, they, they put on display Christ's love, His sacrificial, His unfailing, His loyal love for His church. And when we come to our text, it's a fitting story for what we're going to see. We're going to see something on display. And what we see when we come to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, we see God's faithfulness on display. And yeah, guys, there's some characters that we're going to dive into in this passage. But what we're going to see is that it's less about them and more about this picture that God wants to put on display. And it is his faithfulness. We're going to see that nobody is more faithful than God. And because of his faithfulness, it ought to have some implications for all of life for us. We're going to see God's faithfulness on display. But before we go to work, let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us. God, thank you that you seek after us. Thank you that you initiate toward us, God. Because there are so many of us who would never initiate toward you. I know that's my story. So I thank you, God, that you came after me. And God, that you pull me out of a pit of my own sin. And by your precious blood, God, you wash me clean. And you allowed your Holy Spirit to live on the inside of me. And even when I don't want to do right, God, your Holy Spirit is pulling me back. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would be present with us this morning that you would capture our hearts, that you would capture our minds, that you would draw us into you. Move me aside, God, that you may speak to us this morning. And it's in your name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. So we've been on this journey walking through Hebrews and a brief look at this epistle will lead you to believe that the writer of Hebrews wants to focus the reader's attention on Christ. And and you only have to read through Hebrews a little bit to find that it is the writer of Hebrews intention to focus our attention upon Christ. The writer understands that it is so easy for our attention to be divided. The writer understands that our devotion has a tendency to go in multiple different directions. Over and over again, there are things in our lives that compete for our attention, our allegiance, and our devotion. And the writer of Hebrews is attempting to refocus our attention that we might gaze upon Christ for all of his beauty, for all of his fame, that we might learn that nothing will satisfy us. Apart from Christ. That nothing will be enough apart from Christ. That there is no amount of money. That there is no kind of relationship. That there is no success, no fame, no accolades that will be enough for us apart from Christ. And he attempts to focus our attention that we may gaze upon Christ in all of his beauty. Yet the writer of Hebrews, he knows that everyone will not accept Christ. And he knows that everybody will not embrace this truth, and yet, through God's 
hand of mercy, the writer of Hebrews, multiple different times throughout the epistle, he points us to these warnings. And he lets us know that he warns us that that God would woo us back to himself. And he's warning us, he's saying things like, do not harden your hearts. Uh, Do not harden your hearts. And he's warning over and over again. And he's letting us know that, that the window of opportunity to say yes to Christ will only be open so long. And these warnings are the very hand of God's mercy. That you and I may come to grips with the reality that Jesus did for us what we could never begin to do for ourselves. And that we would take heed to those warnings. These warnings are the very hand of mercy from God. Because God could have not sent a warning. Could have left us in our sin as we were. And yet the writer of Hebrews goes back to these warnings over and over and over again. In fact, these are some of the very same warnings we saw at the beginning of chapter 6. And we were warned that the window of opportunity will not be open for forever. Then the conversation transitions to God's faithfulness that is put on display. And one of the ways we get to see God's faithfulness is through His people. We get to see God's faithfulness through His people. God uses the story of Abraham. God told Abraham that he would make his descendants numerous as the stars. And you know what's incredible? At this point, when God comes to Abraham and tells him that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars, Abraham is already an elderly man. And so here God is coming to him and saying something that literally does not make sense to him. God says, I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to multiply you, and I'm going to use you, Abraham, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, and everybody should have said amen to that. Why? Because when God said to Abraham, when God made a covenant with Abraham, that he was going to use him to get a blessing to all the families of the earth, what God was essentially saying is, Abraham, I'm the kind of God that is not just for the Jews, but I'm the kind of God that is for the Gentiles as well. I'm the kind of God that that has a big heart and that has a a long reach. And I want to reach around everybody and pull them in. And Abraham, I'm going to use you to do it. And Abraham was blown away. Because here he is, he has no children and he's an elderly man. In fact, God sends an angel of the Lord to say that very thing to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And his wife is around the corner. Sarah, do you remember? Sarah begins to laugh at the fact that God said he was going to give them a son. And you know why Sarah was laughing? Because she recognized that stuff just didn't work like it used to work. Uh, Sarah knew that they weren't any spring chickens anymore. Sarah realized and and it, it caused her to chuckle. Because all of a sudden, in our youth, I am a barren woman, stuff ain't working like it used to work, and now you want to tell me that my husband and I are going to come together, we're elderly people, and we're going to have a child. God, you are funny. God says, yes, you will. 
And what we see here is that God actually keeps his word. That God is the kind of faithful God that he keeps his word. That God holds to his word. How does God hold to his word? Because God actually sends this elderly couple a son and a child by the name of Isaac. His name really really means laughter. And here God says, I'm going to keep my word. And I'm going to send you a son. And you know what? I'm going to send you a son in your sunset kind of years. These are more seasoned saints, y'all. And God sends them a son in, in the sunset years of their lives. Why would God do this? See, God could have sent them a son in the prime of their life. God could have sent them a son when Abraham still had a six-pack, y'all. But God said, no, I'm going to do it while you are an elderly couple. Why? God did this, that he might get the glory and not Abraham and Sarah. God said, I'm going to do this when you are weak and fragile, that I might be the one who gets the ultimate glory and not you. And what he is saying in a sense is, this is not going to be your doing, Abraham and Sarah. And yes, I'm going to use you, but this is not going to be your doing that you might boast. And I love this because it was not Abraham's idea. God came to Abraham. God, Abraham did not come to God and say, God, would you multiply me and would you make my descendants uh, as many as the stars in the sky? It was God that initiated toward Abraham. It was God that, that made good on his word through bringing a son in Isaac. It was God that took the laughter out of Sarah's mouth and put joy in her heart because God keeps his word. And he is the faithful kind of God. And what the heck does this mean for us today? It means that God's faithfulness still continues in our lives today. That that God's faithfulness did not stop with Abraham and Sarah. And the fact that you and I are here this morning is a credit to the faithfulness of God. The fact that we still have breath in our bodies and our lungs are inflating this moment says that there is a God who is more faithful than anybody else. And what God does is he uses the weak and the fragile that his plan might go forth, that he might get the glory and that he might get the praise. God uses his people that his plan might move forward. God uses children that his plan might move forward. God uses singles that his plan might move forward. God uses empty nesters that his plan might move forward. God uses stay-at-home moms that his plan might move forward because he is a faithful kind of God. And this is what we see here, that God is consistently faithful. And when Isaac comes to fruition, you know that the world is getting to celebrate because of the faithfulness of God. And i got to tell you that, that they didn't always trust in God's word. Abraham and Sarah did not always 
trust in God's word. And even though Abraham was an obedient person, his wife, when he, when Sarah heard the word of the Lord and what was going to happen through them, she laughed. She did not believe. And what we learn from this is this isn't all that God is going to do through Abraham and Sarah is not based on their good merit. All that God is going to do through Abraham and Sarah is is not based on their accolades. But it's based on the initiating power of God. God chose to, to go toward Abraham and Sarah. God chose to make good on his word. And God is going to choose to fulfill his plan. It ain't have nothing to do with their goodness. And so what you and I need to hear this morning is there is no good that is good enough. God is going to use us as messy as we are when he decides to use us. And he's going to use us to get his plan to move forward that he might get the glory and not us. I love this. Um, Y'all know that there's a lot of bandwagon uh, warrior fans right now, right? The NBA playoffs are happening. There's a lot of bandwagon fans. And it's so crazy to watch uh, the unanimous most valuable player of the entire NBA, Steph Curry. It's crazy to watch him because here he is. A guy that's just about 6'1 or 6'2, and I mean, nobody can stop him from scoring other than himself, and it's amazing. It's amazing to watch. But it's crazy to see his shot. It's almost like he's just throwing the ball up there on a hope and a prayer, but it goes in. It goes in more times than not, and that's why nobody can stop him. But have you ever noticed what Steph Curry does after? A made basket. Steph Curry, he he makes a basket. And I see some of y'all doing the signal. He hits his chest and he points upward. And it's so crazy that his little daughter, Riley Curry, she actually knows the sign as well. I've seen them face to face before or after a game. And they, they get together and both of them in unison are hitting their chest and pointing upward. See, the reality of this is that Steph Curry, even though he is an amazing shooter, even though they've won 73 games more in a regular season than anybody else has won, what Steph Curry does after a made shot, he is declaring to the world while people are cheering and screaming his name, and maybe even while people are booing his name, he is declaring to the world, even though I can make a lot of points, but it is not about me, it's about the the God that I serve. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing with the story of Abraham and Sarah. He's saying that God is so faithful that he will use fragile and weak people that he might get his plan across, that he might receive ultimate glory and nobody else. And he's saying, Abraham and Sarah, it's not about you. But it's about the God that you serve. What about the story of your life? What's the the essence of your life? Have you come to the place where you've understood that all that you do and all that you are 
is less about you and more about the God that you serve. I love this because not only uh, does God use his people to put his faithfulness on display, but secondly, we've got to see that God's faithfulness is displayed through hardship. Look at verse, uh, the second half of verse 18 with me. The writer of Hebrews says this, We who have fled for refuge, underline that word, refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This word refuge in the original language would give us the picture of a person who has actually accidentally murdered somebody. And they are running from fear of retaliation. They have accidentally murdered somebody and they are running to, get this, refuge. All hell has broken loose. All kinds of craziness has broken loose. And this person is running to refuge. Verse 19 helps us as well. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This idea of an anchor reveals the picture of a ship in a mighty storm. It is a ship that cannot handle this storm. The waves are going crazy. And the only thing that can bring this ship to safety is an anchor dropping deep down into the sea. The storm is raging. Everything is chaotic. And the only thing that can bring some rest, the the only thing that can fight the storm is an anchor dropping down to the bottom of the sea. And what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is the reality of hardship. That there are hard things that will transpire in our lives. And many of you have dealt with hard things. And the reality is, when we walk with Jesus, that's when we really face some hard things. Walking with Jesus does not make us exempt from hardship in in walking with Jesus. Matter of fact, it, it offers us up. You remember the story of Job? Uh, God says, have you tried my servant Job? Have you tried him? Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Uh, Remember the story of Daniel and the lion's den? You, You remember all these stories. These are godly people who were worshipers of God, who found themselves in hardship. And this is what the writer is pointing to, that there is one who will be an anchor for our souls. There is one who will become a refuge for us, even as we found ourselves in some dicey situations. That we have a refuge, that we have an anchor for our souls. That's the kind of faithful God that we serve. That God won't just get us out of the trouble, but even if he leaves us there, we have an anchor for our souls in the midst of the storm. Even if we find ourselves in dicey situations, there is a God who whose name is a strong tower above any other name. There is a God who becomes a refuge for us, and he says, my faithfulness will keep you even through rough times. 
So the doctor's report probably could have been crazy. But there is a faithful God who loves you anyway and will keep you through it. Maybe, maybe your womb has been barren and you hadn't been, been able to bear a child like you desire to. There is a faithful God who will keep you in the midst of it. Maybe your bank account stays on E. There is a faithful God, do you hear me this morning, who will keep you in the midst of it. What we see here is God is so faithful that it does not matter what we go through. He will keep us because he's a faithful God. I've got a cousin who um, grew up in St. Louis, and my cousin, uh, he found himself in a messed up situation. Um, he got caught uh, with over, fed, uh, over 50 grams of crack cocaine and uh, found himself in court. He was found guilty, uh, and he was guilty, over 50 grams of crack cocaine. And he sat in the court with his attorney on the side and all of his family members and loved ones, and I wasn't able to make the court case that day. And uh, they read his sentence, and the judge said out of his mouth, I, I now sentence you to natural life in federal prison. And his father stood up in the back row, and he said, Judge, what do you mean? And the judge said to him, Sir, what I mean is that your son will spend the rest of his life in prison. He will die there. And I'm sure my cousin, feeling dejected, he finds himself in a federal prison on lockdown for 23 hours a day. And for 12 years... Serving a natural life sentence in federal prison, there is nowhere you can go. And do you know that, that there was a, a faith on the inside of him that began to bud and, and God began to grow his faith and he began to serve God and worship God and, and a faith began to grow. And do you know that the President of the United States commuted his sentence And my cousin, with a natural life sentence, walked out of federal prison after 12 years just a few weeks ago. But here is his story. Here's what my cousin declares. That even if I would have never gotten out of prison, I would have still worshipped God. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. There's so many. It's so, it's so funny to see y'all because folks are like, should we clap here? Should we? Should we? This is kind of weird, awkward. Um, but this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Uh, he's saying that even in tough times, even in hardships, God's faithfulness sustains us. God's faithfulness remains. And it doesn't matter if anybody else turns their back on us. God will never turn his back on us. When other people say things and they do not keep their word, God is the kind of faithful truth teller. He's the kind of faithful uh, promise keeper that he will always keep his word. And he will sustain us in some messed up situations that we find ourselves in. He is a faithful God. But lastly, we've got to see that God's faithfulness is displayed through the finished work of Jesus. I love this. 
what we see in verse 20, it says, Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And not only do we have a refuge, not only do we have an anchor for our souls, but we have a high priest. And do you know the reality is that God is so faithful that He sent His only Son. And we see the faithfulness in God the most at the cross of Calvary. And when Jesus clothed Himself in flesh, we see the faithfulness of God. When God says yes to the cross of Calvary, we see God's faithfulness. When Jesus uh, accepts a tomb, a borrowed tomb, and he stays there, we see the faithfulness of God. And when Jesus is raised from the grave on the third day, we see the faithfulness of God. We see the faithfulness of God in the reality that Jesus is willing to step into our place and to take upon himself our sin, our guilt, and our shame. If Jesus were to say yes to that, and he did, it is the faithfulness of God. And all of the things that we see pointing to, all of the realities in the Old Testament, they all point to the reality of Jesus. So that when Jesus Jesus steps on the scene, we see God's ultimate faithfulness. That God is the kind of person who keeps His word. And we see it best in Jesus Christ Himself. When blood is running down Jesus' side, we see the faithfulness of God. When there's a crown of thorns on Jesus' head, we see the faithfulness of God. When Jesus is being mocked and scorned, when, when, they, when they're raffling off his clothing, you ought to see the faithfulness of God. That God did not leave us where we stood. That God did not leave us sick in our own sin, drowning in our own despair. But God sent a rescuer for us. He sent a salvation for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. When we look at Jesus, we ought to see the faithfulness of God. When we look at the finished work of the cross, we ought to see the faithfulness of God, Jesus is on the cross of Calvary, and he said those famous words, it is finished. And in those words, we ought to hear that God is faithful, because he did not leave us as we were. He pursued us through the blood of his son. He came after us through the covenant of His Son. And Jesus is so in love with His Father that He said yes to death, that He would please His Father, that He would give us an opportunity to use His personal sacrifice to say yes to Him. And what we see in the relationship with Jesus and His Father, we see a faithful God. And Jesus' sacrifice is one of great faithfulness. Uh, The president of Columbia International University, um, the former president, back in 1999, Robertson McQuilkin, he 
stepped down in 1990. And you know why he stepped down? He stepped down so that he can take care of his wife who was sick with Alzheimer's. And in 1990, he was eight years away from receiving all of the benefits of retirement. And he walked away from it all. The president of a university. Do you know how long it takes to become a president of the university? And he laid it all down for the love of his wife. I read some comments of his and he recently passed away. And he said, I owed it to her. After all of these years, she's cared for me. It's the least I can do. And if I have to care for her in his own words, true story, for 40 years, it still not would be enough. He laid it all down. He sacrificed it all for the benefit of somebody else. And I want to tell you this morning, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus laid it all down. And he said, here is my life. And even though you don't deserve it, I offer it up for you. That you might say yes to it. And Jesus displayed the faithfulness of God through the sacrifice of his life. And all he says to us is to say yes to it. Jesus says, you've, 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 you've only got to say yes. God has been faithful to you all throughout the journey of your life. And all you have to do is say yes. Jesus sacrificed himself like a bride and a bridegroom walking to the altar. Jesus says, here I am because I love my church that much. And all you have to do is say yes. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. God, I pray for us this morning that we who are weary would find rest for our weary souls in Jesus Christ. God, that we wouldn't find it in acceptance of others, that we wouldn't find it in fame, that we wouldn't find it in accomplishing things in our education that but God that we would find it in you thank you God that you are a faithful one and Lord we pray this morning that you would receive these gifts and these offerings that we're about to give to you and God as an act of worship God we give back to you that which already belongs to you and we thank you God that Everything we have belongs to you. Father, in the same way that Abraham was just a model for your mission, for your glory, we pray that these gifts and these offerings would be the same, that your glory and your mission would go forth through them. And we thank you, Father, for the ability to give. And we pray that we would be sacrificial givers each and every day of our life, that it would grow in the fabric, in the tapestry of our families. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.